Dr. Burlett, great to have you in the studio again. Well, thank you again very much for having me. As always, it's a pleasure and a surprise. <laughs> and a surprise. Well, you know what? It's always the first time for everybody. I know uh, many of our listeners, of course, will have seen the past episodes we've done. But for those who haven't uh, tuned in before, why don't you give a brief uh, um, introduction to who you are, what you do, and uh, and what your interest is in the whole creation-evolution debate. Oh, well, I'm glad that you narrowed it to my interest in the creation-evolution debate because <laughs> I could go on and on about all my other interests. <laughs> right. Uh, my kids always want me to mention Skylanders or Lego Mario <laughs> or things, but we know that that's not the topic of discussion <laughs> <Exactly>. for today. <laughs> yeah, we're going to theologically geek out today, not just geek out. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so my name is Dustin Burlett, and uh, I recently completed my PhD at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, my dissertation subject was a rhetorical critical analysis of Noah's flood, Genesis 6 through 9. And my uh, external examiner was Carol Kaminsky, actually, who uh, wrote a book, Was Noah Good? Question mark. Fantastic person to have supervised my work as an right. external examiner. And so uh, my subject was in that area. I also had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon with Answers in Genesis. Right. And Professor John Whitmore of Cedarville University was a tremendous influence in my life because most of my research on the geological impact of the flood uh, did not take into account some of the specifics with respect to the Coconino sandstone. Mm -hmm. And so John Whitmore's expertise in that area had a not insignificant role to play in shaping my total thought processes with respect to the geological impact of the flood. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's pretty incredible that uh, right here in Canada, we've got a, a PhD in Old Testament that specialized in, in the flood and the ark, which is just incredible. But um, today we've got a, a kind of a different take. Um, we're going to have you back again, and, and we're going to be discussing many, many things. But I thought this would be a great um, exploration. You know, we see so often in Christendom now, especially in academia, and I know you've um, you've encountered it, is people kind of looking at Genesis 1 to 11 and saying, well, it's just poetic. And, you know, what we know about creation, I mean, you know, the Jewish people, they were just simple. They wouldn't have understood this sophisticated story of evolution. And, and so God just wrote this kind of poem or the story, and we don't have to take it as, as literal. Um, and, and we see this all over the place. I mean, in in Obviously, from Answers in Genesis perspective, it's a massive um, compromise. That that's the way we would we would put it. But let's just take this little thought experiment here. What if you were stranded on a desert island and you had never read the Bible, and some maybe the Gideons left uh, one of the, their their I New Testament Bibles? The Gideons <laughs> giving me a red New Testament. Yep. Uh, in grade six with Psalms and Proverbs, because of course those are inspired as well, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That kind of half Bible. Um, and, and what if you only had that and you said, well, gee, I wonder how God created the world and you could only go to the New Testament. What would it reveal? So that's what we're going to do here today. You know, I think that is a great, great place yeah. to begin exploration because so many people when you hand them a Bible mm -hmm. and they're a new believer, or let's say they're a non-Christian, I have a person at work, he comes from uh, India. Right. And I have quite a few Christians in my workplace, actually, and it's interesting because they talk to him about Christianity. Mm -hmm. And he just approached me this week and said, you know, uh, he 
said, Dustin, I'm seriously thinking about becoming a Christian. Hmm. And I said, well, if you want to, what we really need to discuss is the person of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so let's imagine if only we had Jesus to go to, right. what might we learn about creation as well? Mm, yeah, exactly. Because Jesus had a lot to say. As a matter of fact, I got a couple of notes here. You know, and, and you were telling me before we started that you actually, one of your, your specialties was looking at what the New Testament had to say about the Old Testament, right? You know, that is interesting that you mentioned it. So uh, one of the courses that I took in my PhD program was yeah. New Testament use of the Old Testament. Right. And so I've uh, presented at different conferences on that subject, for instance, Peter's use of the flood. Mm -hmm. And I've also uh, done a little bit of uh, research in other areas of the New Testament use of the Old Testament as well. Right. So I got a couple of notes here. Um, over 100 references to Genesis in the New Testament, 60 references to Genesis 1 to 11 in the New Testament. The New Testament refers to all 11 chapters of Genesis 1 to 11, and Jesus himself refers to Genesis uh, 1 to 11 16 times. You know, pardon me for saying this, I yeah. don't want to let the cat out of the bag or anything, but uh, Jesus has this unique way of citing all of the scripture references that make many people feel uncomfortable, such as Jonah and yeah. how that, uh, uh, references with respect to his death and resurrection, or Sodom and Gomorrah, right. or the flood as it was in the days of Noah. In other words, all those places that make uh, many people feel uncomfortable with respect to last time we talked about genre and how right. uh, whether or not there's referential history in some of these literatures. But he almost always cites those passages and those texts that make a, a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. Um, so let's get into this here. What what I did is I thought, well, let's look at 10 specific passages and we can discuss much more. I know you've got uh, a lot more to say about this, but I thought, okay, let's look at these 10 passages and just banter back and forth and see what this actually reveals because so many Christians are struggling. I mean, we look at the look at the culture today and you've got issues with identity and traditional marriage and you've got abortion and you've got euthanasia and you've got this cancel culture that's going out there i mean people are literally shaking their heads going what on earth is happening to western culture right they're, they're barack obama in his book you know yep. the audacity of hope right whatever we once were we are no longer and of course when you look at the yep. research that ken ham has done in his book already gone or yep. you know he's actually got a few more that are in that uh, yep. line as well. But when you look at that, our, the foundations of our culture have shifted to the point where a traditional Judeo-Christian worldview or even the values imparted by a Judeo-Christian worldview, they're no longer assumed. That's right. And if you're going to defend any one of those issues that I just mentioned, I mean, you, you've seen that classic, you know, castle diagram. I remember seeing Ken present years and years ago now, and he would show the castle of humanism Based on Secular humanism. Yeah. And then he would see all these balloons, like kind of the outworking of those things. And that's what we're talking about. Those balloons are what we're talking about. They, and, the uh, outcome of, of, of thinking man's word over God's word, right? Well, if I remember correctly, because it was a, an animated illustration, it right. was actually in moving picture. And uh, some of the generals or some of the soldiers were firing at the balloons mm -hmm. or rather than targeting the foundation. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And and of course, the humanist castle was aiming at the, the, the castle of, you know, God's word. And, and it was firing at the foundation. That's right. And if you remember, some of the people in the 
Christian castles, so to speak, were actually firing at their own foundation. And this is really what we're talking about here, where we've got major Christian leaders, thinkers, apologists, pastors, authors, Bible college, uh, you know, professors, who are saying to their students, to their to their flock, so to speak, you don't need to take Genesis 1 to 11 as plainly written. You don't have to believe there was an actual first man, Adam. You can incorporate evolutionary ideas into the Bible. And at a bare minimum, you can certainly add millions of years to scripture. So that's why I thought it would be great for us to look at the New Testament, even though you're an expert in the Old Testament, um, really to reveal the fact that the New Testament writers, the apostles, Jesus himself took Genesis as plainly written. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, Mark Boda, he would often mention, uh, as often as he could, the Bible is 75% the Old Testament, right? Uh, Hebrew and Aramaic. But of course, uh, what the New Testament often is, is a footnote to the Old. And so there's a lot of scholarly debate about the definition of a quotation or the definition of an allusion or the definition of an echo. Mm -hmm. But irrespective of those anomalies, what we do know is that you can basically piece together a good portion of the biblical story through the New Testament narrative. Absolutely. I like to point out to people, if you're thinking of, you know, you're talking about percentages of, of canon, of, of scripture, right? 75 to 25%. Let's look at the actual timeline of the Bible. So if you went from today to when Jesus was here doing his earthly ministry, you've got roughly 2,000 years. Let's roughly just take, 2, right? And most of that's not recorded in scripture. I mean, you've got the New Testament, right? But uh, as far as that 2,000 years, there's only a small portion of that that's actually in, in Scripture. Yeah, you got like basically to 70 AD about. Exactly. So if you went from his earthly ministry to, let's say, when Abraham, you know, <laughs> and even secular archaeologists will say, yeah, there was a guy named Abraham lived about 2,000 BC. So you got about another 2,000 years. And then you go from Abraham to, you know, add up all the chronogenealogies up to creation, you've got roughly 2,000 years. Roughly 6,000 years of human history that is recorded in Scripture. Well, actually, there's about 4,000 years recorded in Scripture, and then the last 2,000 years haven't, right? That's right. So let's think about that. So you've got 4,000 years of recorded time in Scripture. 50% of the recorded time in Scripture is from Genesis 1 to 11. There you go. So when you've got a Bible college professor or, you know, a seminary professor or your pastor saying, well, you know, Genesis 1 to 11, it's just poetic. It's just an analogy. You're telling somebody that 50% of the recorded time in scripture is an analogy, is, you know, that Jesus is a metaphor. Why then, as we're going to go through, are the New Testament writers referring to this 50% 50% of time that's an analogy and talking about these people like they're real people that actually make a difference, especially when we get into the book of Romans, because obviously Adam and what he did made a big difference to the world that we're living in right now. It's uh, staggering. Permission to speak freely, Absolutely. Calvin. It's interesting because I often tell people that I was 16 mm-hmm. when I heard the gospel, but that isn't quite true. I believe I was 16 when I first heard and understood the gospel. See, right. I was raised in Christian culture. I, right. I've been to, I've gotten perfect attendance in Sunday school basically until I was 18. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's something that I never planned. But, you know, the church that I grew up in, uh, the gospel wasn't necessarily presented in the way that I could have always understood it as the gospel. Mm-hmm. But one of my friends invited me to hear a traveling circuit preacher. Okay. And when I went to that particular church, 
he had a huge banner at the front, and it said the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Hmm. And on the one side of the banner was the first man, Adam. Right. And on the other side of the banner was the last man, Christ. <laughs> and he spent mm, roughly an hour expounding on the gospel right. from Adam to Christ. And afterwards, he went up and shook my hand and he said, did you understand everything that I said? And I said, well, sir, I wanted to, mm. but I'm not sure if I did. Mm. And so what he actually did was he came back right. and we settled it out. He gave me all of his teaching notes, gave me all of his lecture notes. Huh. But by the time I was done, I finally understood what the missing piece of my gospel message was. Right. And it was that Adam and Christ component. Right. Where it had never been made clear to me before. Where sin came from and why we even need Christ. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's get into this. Um, we're going to just go back and forth here. And uh, so first up is uh, Mark 10, 6. Did you want to read the actual scripture there for, uh, for our listeners? Mark 10, 6. Kelvin, where can I find it? Uh, let me see here. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female, right? It's just uh, a little ways down there. Thank the, you. The I, I appreciate your patience. Yeah, no, no problem. I just threw these notes together real quick. I thought uh, this would be a good starting point anyway. From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. What, what is the significance of Jesus making this statement as far as the concept of creation, the biblical timeline, all of those things. What does that speak to you? Well, it's interesting because C. John Collins, who is considered to be one of the world's foremost authorities on the subject of basically science, faith, and the Old Testament, wrote a book called Science and Faith. Mm -hmm. He also wrote a really good commentary on Genesis 1 through 4 and another really good commentary called Reading Genesis Well, among other works. Right. But he states explicitly in one of his books that if this passage actually does explicitly refer to a young earth, he states, then I'm in trouble. Hmm. Because he doesn't believe in young earth. He doesn't believe in young earth. And then he goes on to explain in the next basically three quarters of a page to a page about how this does not refer to a young earth. Right. And what I find so interesting is that he himself will acknowledge that if this verse does point to it, then he's in trouble. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay, so let's let's break this out for our listeners so that they can understand why he would make that. You know that why, I know why, but for our that's listeners. Right. So here's the challenge for the Christian that's trying to add, you know, 13.4 billion or whatever the timeline is now for the universe and the 4.3 or whatever the, the timeline is for the earth. If Jesus' statement as plainly written is correct, and he says, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them, made them female. He's talking about the creation of man and woman. Then if you've got a, a universe that's 13 uh, and a half billion years old, that was the beginning of the creation 13 billion years ago. Yes. Jesus associates the beginning of what we would call the cosmos, the beginning of space and time with the creation of humanity. He right. dovetails them together. He does not divorce or divide them. That's right. So... If the earth is, or the universe is 13 and a half billion years old, then Jesus is wrong because he didn't create Adam and Eve from the beginning of the creation. He created them way, 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 way later. As a matter of fact, it, it should be stated that, you know, at the end of the creation, I created the male and female. Well, when you look at a traditional time scale of 
when humanity appeared on the scene from a traditional perspective, you got a 24-hour clock. And what are what's humanity at? Maybe, you know, hour 2345? Right. Something very, very slim. Yeah. We're Johnny-come-lately. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I like to think of it as, a, let's say, a month. You know, if, if I said to you, hey, Dustin, you know, uh, you said, Cal, when, when did you get this coffee mug? And I said, well, I got it the first, uh, first of December, you know. Um, at the beginning of December. That's right. I, it doesn't have to mean, you know, at the very, like, you know, the clock ticked over. It was December 1st, the, the first, it, that, that's not what it means. It could be like probably within the first three or four days, the first week. Right? Well, that's it, what is, we think. It, it is interesting because um, some people want to go to great lengths to define, well, this was a sixth day creature versus this is a third day creature. But, and there are yep. instances in scripture like, Paul, when he's speaking of circumcision of the flesh, mm -hmm. he is very, very proud to say, with respect to circumcision, I'm an eighth day man. Yeah. And that was a big deal because right. not everyone had the opportunity to obey the Torah's teachings with respect to that. So when he says, I'm an eighth day man, that eighth day actually matters and it would be taken in the most literal sense. Yes. But to say at that point in time, when God created the world, yeah. that was also the beginning of humanity. Yeah. It's the same thing. Right. So from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. So it's a, it, it, we've got the creation. We've got Adam and Eve created on day six of creation. As plainly written, that just makes sense. Now, you mentioned that this fellow said, well, if that's what it means, I'm in trouble. As in he's an old earther or an evolutionist. I'm not sure either. either it doesn't matter Many people would call it theistic evolutionist or creation evolutionist. Okay. So he's the theistic evolutionist. Either way, you've got to believe in the billions of years time scale. You Why, must accommodate it. What's going on in his mind? I am in trouble. What? What? He, he's like, well, this can't mean that then. I think that that's exactly that. There would be a cognitive dissonance going on, right? Because you you couldn't Jesus would be wrong. So, what are some of the ways you've you've seen people try to to sneak around this? Oh, many many people. <laughs> well. I never thought of it in terms of sneaking around because I'm not. So, I think of it that way, but anyway. I'm not so persuaded that many of the people, uh, such as Kenton Sparks or Peter Enns or whoever else you yeah. want to fill in the blanks, who are almost at the forefront of some of these discussions, would see it as sneaking around. What right. they would, what they would see it as, is how can I wrestle with my understanding of divine accommodation? Mm -hmm. Because what they perceive is is that Jesus, for lack of a better way to put it would perhaps be speaking out of his humanity. Mm -hmm. As a good Jewish boy, he would teach people what he himself had been taught. Right. And God cannot, for instance, one of the quote taglines is, the Bible was always written for us, but not to us. It was written to the Jews, to their time, to their culture. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in order to speak to that culture, Jesus had to use their understanding of the universe and the world. And Jesus would not go above and beyond that teaching to impart his theological truth. Right. Yeah. And that goes back to, you know, kind of where people would say, well, you know, th this was a primitive culture. They wouldn't have understood the sophisticated story of evolution. I've, I've heard this from so many people. And when I hear it, I just say, well, look, okay, I'm, I'm going to speak it as if it might have been said according to, to God's word, if that if God had used evolution. Um, see if everybody can understand this here. In the beginning, God created the first living thing. And that living thing changed and eventually became all of the living things that have ever been. 
Is that any, took you maybe 10 seconds. Yeah. Is anybody confused? No. no. You, you, I mean, he could have expounded on it more. He could have said, they changed slowly and one thing became another thing. Like, it would be so easy to say because as a matter of fact, that's exactly what they're doing in kindergarten classes in state-run public school systems all over the world right now. And none of the kids seem to be confused because they all, you know, seem to at least be able to understand the concept of evolution, even if they don't believe it, but most of them do. But what they do find confusing the kids is how does this square with what I do know about reality? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> I don't see evolution happening, right? And so I, I just don't, I, I completely dismiss that line of argumentation. Oh, well, it would have been, they wouldn't have understood it. No, everybody understands it. It's so easy to impart to somebody. Well, we mentioned in a previous episode about the Bible among the myths mm -hmm. and how the Bible uh, in a lot of ways goes above and beyond the worldview of the culture of the day. Because if you imagine a circle diagram and it's divided into three pie slices, you've got the gods, humanity, and nature all contained within the same created order. Mm -hmm. So the idea that God was a created being, well, that's just a given. Everybody worshiped a created being. Right. But when you look at the God of Scripture, who is outside of time, outside of space, and is the, uh, to quote Aristotle, the unmoved prime mover, mm -hmm. well, that's a huge, dramatic worldview shift. And yet God didn't feel the need to somehow... Um, dumb it down right. to make sure that they could understand it. Mm -hmm. And let's imagine, let's imagine that if evolution were true, then why would God go out of his way so many times to say, after their kind, mm -hmm. that they will reproduce after their kind? And to say that so often, yeah, if in fact they were all of one organism. Yeah, yeah. Reproduce according to their kinds. Obviously, dogs make dogs, people make people, etc. So, yeah, that that line of reasoning doesn't seem to hold true. And if the whole, I, I think what they're admitting there is that the plain reading of Genesis seems to impart six day creation. But now that we know science has proven evolution, um, you know, Jesus was speaking in his humanity. He was trying to communicate to what they believed. Okay, but in the end, are we not saying that God actually misled people? See, this is worth unpacking. Yeah. Uh, I just recently watched an interview with John Walton. Mm -hmm. John Walton is a well-known expert on areas concerning the ancient Near East. His Lost World series have gained a lot of traction in a lot of different circles. Mm -hmm. This interview was with Carmen Imes of uh, Prairie Bible College in Alberta, fantastic scholar. I highly recommend a lot of her work, particularly her. Uh, she's got a lot of YouTube videos and things right. that she's doing online. But this interview, uh, sorry for context, Carmen studied under John Walton at okay. Wheaton. Yep. Uh, you mentioned the plain reading of scripture. Mm -hmm. Walton stated explicitly in this interview that our intuition can often lead us astray when it comes to the Bible. And one of the reasons that he says that our intuition can often lead us astray is simply that we were not a part of that cultural river. So our idea of a plain sense reading of scripture or a common sense reading of scripture can actually skew or distort our understanding because we all too often are reading it not the way that they would have understood it, but the way that we would want to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so he 
takes umbrage with the concept of a plain reading of Scripture. Right. Yeah, and, and I've heard people say that as well. But here's the thing. How do they know that? I mean, we're conversing right now, right? So we're taking each other as we plainly understand how we're saying that. Could we misunderstand each other? Could one of our listeners kind of misunderstand what we meant to say? Maybe we need to clarify that and, and all this stuff. But why are these experts all coming along right now after, you know, the story of evolution gets popularized and millions of years gets popularized? Because let's face it, when you look up Bible commentaries prior to Lyell in, you know, geology Hutton. and older th concepts and things like that, and and yeah, and James Hutton, um, you don't even see old earth and, and evolution in the theological marketplace, so to speak. So, there was no traction for those ideas because there wasn't the space or allowance for it because without the geology, there wouldn't be any um, common descent. Right. So this whole argument that, well, you know, uh, the plain reading isn't, you know, it, 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 our intuition, da, 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 that doesn't fly with me because if prior to the old earth ideas and, and evolutionary ideas becoming popularized in the West, virtually no one accepted them like I, I hear people say all the time well you know you know you look at augustine he didn't take genesis as plainly written yeah but he was a young earth creationist and they say no he wasn't i say yes he was because he believed the earth was less than six thousand years old and he believed god created now he didn't believe the days were real days he thought that was figurative and god was trying to you know um basically describe creation according to what man would understand and he believed god created in an instant but he was still a young earth creationist. It's interesting so. because uh, C. John Collins uh, also believes in a, what would be called a work days analogy. So if you read um, certain ones of his literature, he says, well, this is an analogy of how God worked and these are God's days versus what we would understand right. to be human days. Yeah, yeah. So the argument is, well, we shouldn't take things as plainly written. How come everybody took it as plainly written for the first 1800 years of Christendom? And then now, oh, now we, we know about Darwinian evolution. So now the plain reading, well, we shouldn't take the plain reading because it, it, it's not a logical way to argue in my, in my uh, estimation. There are some, there's a lot of, uh, I believe that it's very important to recognize that a lot of the ancients didn't have access to some of the documents that we have now. So for right. instance, it's the cracking of the Rosetta Stone or the tablets at Ugarit, or some of these other ones, that we didn't have access to some of the ancient Near Eastern manuscripts. And so I believe that there's two extremes. The one of them is called uh, parallelomania, mm -hmm. where everything is a parallel. Right. There's this one biblical scholar, his last name is De Hood, mm -hmm. and he was an Ugaritic specialist, and his Psalms commentary, he would almost always try to find a reference to some other Semitic language or some other ancient Near Eastern language. Right. The trouble is, is that you never knew when he was right and you never knew when he was wrong. <laughs> the other one is parallelophobia. Like you just, yeah. Where we are unwilling to explore the ancient Near East and how its context can uh, shape and enliven our understanding of the text. Right. I grew up in Alberta and I told this story to my neighbor and I said, for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. And he looked at me and he said, not out here, Dustin. <laughs> but all too often, it is true that happy medium between 
parallelomania and parallelophobia is where we got to go. Ancient Near Eastern culture can enliven our understanding of the text, yeah. and it can help sharpen our perspective. But it is not a magic wand that you can wave, particularly to eradicate how the New Testament understood the Old Testament. Right. So when we discuss genre and how genre triggers reading strategy, well, one of the principles of biblical interpretation is that Scripture ought to interpret Scripture. Right. So whatever we want uh, Genesis or creation to be understood as, one of the key ways that we can look to understanding that isn't always necessarily the ancient Near East. We can look to how, how did these other Jews who were a part of this culture, particularly the people of the New Testament, understand it. Right. They are the right hermeneutic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's move to our next uh, Bible verse here, and that's Luke 3.38, and I'll read it. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, or 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then there's some more there, but I, I've just... Uh, omitted them for brevity, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So here in the genealogy of Luke, we see that he actually traces um, Jesus' genealogy all the way back through Abraham, all the way back to Adam. And of That's course, we person. understand that this isn't a novel idea. Yeah. When you look at the book of Chronicles, which we will mention a little bit later in this mm -hmm. segment, Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogy right. that goes all the way back to Adam. Right. This is not a novel idea. It's not a novel idea. And I mean, here's the thing. I've heard so many Christians, well, Adam's a metaphor for the human race. But where exactly do these metaphorical people start? Because the scripture never makes any kind of delineation between this person being a real person and this person being some kind of metaphor or analogy or et cetera. And what else is also interesting is that many people, such as Tremper Lawman, uh, will want to say that you cannot use the genealogies to construct a chronology because, um, and he'll point to New Testament passages such as these genealogies and yeah. other things. And Which we know there are omissions. We know that there yeah. are omissions. But the challenge is, is that when you begin to really do it, the space and allowance for gaps cannot be so severe to make any marked difference. In other words, let's say that there might be three omissions and you say that a generation is 40 years. We're dealing with what? Maybe 200 years difference of history? Mm -hmm. Not 13.5 billion. Well, yeah, let's unpack this a little bit for our listeners if they're not really familiar with the arguments. So um, what some people will say is, look, we look in the New Testament genealogies and we know there are omissions, like gaps, right? They, they don't list every single person. In the Old Testament, they list what's called a chronogenealogy. This chrono person begat this person and then they lived this age. And, and then they age, died. <laughs> yeah. And, and at this age, they had this son and then they, you know, and stuff. So, okay, let's unpack a couple things. Number one, how do we know that the New Testament have omissions? Well, because we have an Old Testament chronogenealogy where we can compare and said, hey, they skipped some things here for certain reasons, right? Which we can come back to later on in some of these other ones as well. Yeah, I mean, we, but but that's the that's why we know. We've got a that's comparison. That's why we know. So if you only had the New Testament, you wouldn't be able to know in, a, in right. a sense. But so we do know 
Then you go to the chronogenealogies, but the, the, the thing that's always, I've always struggled with when people say, well, there might be gaps. This is what you were mentioning. If Whether the son was a adopted son, uh, you know, direct son, grandson, or whatever that's being talked about, the way the chronogenealogies work, it says, and maybe you can enlighten me on this, but it says, this person was born, they lived to be this age. At this age, they had a son. And then this son lived to this age. And at this point, they had a son. How do you actually insert people that aren't there? You, you could say, well, that was a grandson they're talking about, or that was an adopted son. or so. You can say all those things, but how do you actually slip more people into it if we've got a person, they died at this age, this is where the next person starts. They, that's an overlapping, I don't see how people- One of my slip. big challenges, well, I shouldn't call it a big challenge. One of the uh, minor details in a big organization like this that I had to wrestle with was Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Mm -hmm. Who was the oldest and why? And how can you account for that? Right. But when you really go back to it, when you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, there were people who were excluded from certain positions because they could not account for their family lineage. Mm. These people were very, very familiar with the sanctity of what was going on. It was very important to that culture. And so when we trivialize the value of a genealogy, what we are really doing is we are trivializing something that they held in very high esteem. Yes. When I taught the book of Ruth, one of the things that I emphasized was genealogies are theologies. Mm, yeah. yeah, it was very important to the Jewish culture, right? That they could actually trace their lineage, et cetera. Um, now, uh, just to go back up a little bit, so there, again, our listeners can understand. Um, when you when we were talking about the chronogenealogies and the fact that some people say, well, yeah, there's some missing lineages in there or whatever, if you want to argue that way. I personally don't see how you can put missing people, but let's say there were. What you were saying is, okay, but let's say you've got a couple of missing generations. That certainly doesn't add up to four and a half billion years of missing time or and millions of years. And even if there were. Yeah. Well, see, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this, but that was one of the differences between John Whitcomb mm -hmm. and Henry Morris, right. was Henry Morris wanted to believe in roughly 6,000 years, whereas John Whitcomb was able to accommodate upwards of 10,000. Right. That's why often the unearthed creationists will say, oh, six between 6 to, to 10. 10 yeah. Now, of course, Henry Morris' speciality was uh, hydrologic engineering, yeah. whereas John Whitcomb's was the Bible. Right. And so he, even he could say, oh, there's some attestation that there might be this. Right. But here's what I find. What point is anybody making? What they are trying to do is they're trying to undermine an argument, from my estimation, they're trying to undermine an argument for young earth creationism using the genealogies. Yeah. But no matter how a person uses the genealogies, they cannot construct anything even remotely close to anything apart from a young earth creationist position. Right. Let's say you go with Whitcomb's position and, and the earth is 10,000 years and you've got 4,000 more years in there. What good does that do to an old earth creationist or like for an old earth creationist position or a theistic evolutionary position? That's your that's your point, right? It's it's kind of like an argument that's a non-argument. Yeah. Even Dennis Lamoureux, uh, he's uh, quite well known from the University of Alberta. Yep. Uh, I theistic used, evolutionist. Theistic evolutionist. Yeah. Uh, one of his books is, I Love Jesus and I Believe in Evolution. Yeah. <laughs> but I used his chronology 
of the genealogies in my dissertation. And he himself says, I've reckoned the chronology of the genealogies to be roughly exactly what we've spoken of. And then after that, he goes on to, and this is why we cannot believe it. But even he, in his own reckoning, says it's about this long. Right. So it's kind of like saying, well, this is what the Bible says, but this is why you don't have to believe it. Well, that goes back to what we were talking about, a common sense or a plain sense reading of the text. This is what my intuition my intuition tells me the text reads. Right. But for reasons that, you know, it cannot mean this. But are any of those reasons within Scripture? And that's why we're going to keep going. Right. See, th- that argument to me just doesn't make any sense. It's like when I read the words here, my intuition is telling. See, I even think the word intuition, that's an incorrect language use. Go ahead. Because if I say, well, I've got this intuition that this verse might mean this verse, it, it, it's almost like saying, well, it doesn't plainly say that, but it kind of makes me think maybe kind of, kind of. It's not direct. And so if they're arguing that when I look at the text, it's informing me one thing, but I know because of quote unquote science that it can't With mean With a capital that. S. Right. What you're telling the me The trump is, card. That has more authority than the words of scripture. So I think the word intuition is actually an incorrect usage here. Uh, One of my favorite courses that I took in my PhD program was with Dr. Stan Porter. He was our president. And it was on history of biblical interpretation. Now, in that course, we had to write a paper on the future of biblical interpretation. It required quite a bit of analysis. Now, McMaster Divinity College is very emphatic about methodology, Mm -hmm. the method is the magic. But in one of the books edited by Stan Porter on five views of biblical hermeneutics, basically how one approaches interpreting scripture, how one ought to read it, one of the contributors said, no matter what else one is doing, apart from a grammatical historical reading of scripture, you are not reading scripture. You are reading your own voice and using it as a sounding board. All right. See, that is more of my definition of intuition. You're, you're taking what's already in your head and you're kind of, oh, well, intuitively it's telling me this. Or, you know, it's like when I hear people like Dr. Hugh Ross say, well, the first time I read the, the, the Genesis, I knew that the days were figurative. What informed him of that? It obviously wasn't the text just speaking it to him because coming from an atheistic background, believing in evolution in millions of years, because you have to believe in evolution if you're an atheist. When I got saved and I read the Bible for the first time and I read Genesis, I was like, wow, God created in six days. There was nothing going on in my, I went from believing in millions of years and evolution to the renewing of my mind and going, oh, that's the way God created. And you know, it is interesting because Previously, I mentioned how Scripture ought to interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man like Bruce Waltke, esteemed Hebraicist, he he has a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. So Mark Boda studied Hebrew under Bruce Waltke, and he would say, all right, and then he would kind of close his eyes, and his eyes were shuttering. He's like, uh, page whatever, footnote, section, blah, 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 and wow. he could go through his introduction to biblical Hebrew syntax. It's still- um, Staggering some of the intellect. Oh, oh my word. <laughs> But he would say that the presence, now there's a lot of debate about whether or not one calls it the definite article, Mm -hmm. because if there's no indefinite article, you know, the versus a. Right. 
if there was no indefinite article, why call it the definite article? But he says day one is simply the definition of the day. You got uh, the e there was evening and there was morning. One, one day. day. So it's self-defining. Right. But day two through five, the article is absent. A second day. A third day. Mm -hmm. A fourth day. A fifth day. The sixth day. Mm. The seventh day. Now, Bruce Waltke would say that the presence or the absence of the article would suggest or would point to a dechronologized, de, a dechronological account. <laughs> now, the challenge, no matter, because the, the Hebrew of the Genesis creation account, particularly the first uh, day of creation, actually is quite tricky. Bereshith mm -hmm. uh, bara Elohim, for instance. So Bereshith uh, is the word, uh, the, there's the preposition baith, mm -hmm. ba, and then rashith, that's beginning, in beginning. There's no article there right. in the beginning. So there's a lot of grammatical and syntactical analysis to go into how do we understand that it's in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, there's things such as uh, the Masoretic text has little accent marks, and there's a disjunctive accent that points to uh, certain uh, informed readings that it should lend itself to in the beginning. Right. But we also have other ancient manuscripts that bear witness and testify to it as well, such as John 1.1, 1, 1, NRK and Halagos, in the beginning right. was the word, mm -hmm. quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. which also says in the beginning. Right. Now, going back to this whole presence of the article or not presence of the article in days one through seven, Irrespective of the complexities of Hebrew grammar and syntax, which are not insignificant, yeah. Robert Holmstead is writing an excellent book using an informed linguistic method to try to expand and clarify on some of these points. Right. Scripture ought to interpret Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so no matter what we think Genesis 1 through uh, the days of 1 through 7 in Genesis could mean, the book of Exodus tells us what it does mean. Exodus and it stays very explicitly, in six days, God created, and on the seventh, he rested right. and was refreshed. Mm -hmm. So irrespective of those complexities, we already have a divinely sanctioned, authorized reading of the scriptures. Yeah. And we also have that in the New Testament as well. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me to see how many Christian scholars are it, to me almost it, it seems like they're doing theological backflips to be honest brother um sometimes just to try to explain away the plain reading of scripture um in genesis when uh, you're probably familiar with professor james barr hebrew scholar uh oriel professor of interpretation at oxford and in a, in a personal letter i'm just going to read it for our listeners here he said this Speaking about what did the writer of Genesis intend to convey. Now, it's important to, uh, for people listening to to understand something. Barr is not a Christian. He, he, he was a professor of Hebrew. He could tell you what Hebrew means. He could tell you what the meaning of the text is. But in a sense, he, he, he doesn't have a fight. He doesn't have a dog in the fight. He knew the, the psalm, but not the shepherd. Exactly. He can tell you what it means, um, but he's not trying to argue for any specific apologetic approach or whatever. And he said, as far as I know, there's no professor of Hebrew 
or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to the readers the idea that creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by Simple Edition are chronology from the beginning of the world up to the later stages in the biblical story, and that Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life except for those on the ark. Now, I mean, see, that's what I took away the first time I read Genesis. When you read it, what it said was basically what it meant. That's right. And you needed other people to tell you that you were wrong. Exactly. There might be nuances or things, things here and there that I didn't quite understand. But big picture sense, I understood what Professor James Barr, who's a Hebrew scholar, okay, at Oxford, just told me. So... Why is it this 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 reference to intuition? It's not intuition. It's the plain reading of the text. And when you go into a uh, a law uh, situation, let's say you you get called to court and you're accused of something, okay? And the lawyer is sitting there and they're taking down your testimony. They take down what you say as you plainly say it. And if they catch you in some kind of infraction or or discrepancy, you, you, discrepancy or you, you um, contradict yourself or something like that, that's how they nail you. That's how they get you. And they say, you aren't telling the truth. Well, even with Jesus, what did the teachers of the law want to do? They wanted to trap Jesus with his words because right. they believed well, you know what? I used to use this cartoon. Uh, one of my brother-in-laws is an engineer. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, uh, engineers really appreciate Dilbert. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there's this one Dilbert cartoon where he's arguing with a co-worker. And the co-worker is saying, you know, when I read this memo, I think it, I, I, I understood it to mean this and this and this. And finally, Dilbert just throws his hands up and says, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You should be able to understand it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I find a lot of these arguments that, you know, obviously you've dealt with them probably more than I have, but uh, I, I just find they don't make sense when people start using I- intuition, but it only uh, accommodates the last 200 years. But that seems to be the time frame when evolution became very popular. To me, it's just like they're trying to work around what the Bible plainly says. And I'll tell you where I think that really hurts the witness is that when you then argue in that fashion and then you argue for things like, hey, you need to accept Christ as your savior. You you know, Jesus died. He, he, he paid the penalty for sin. He, he died on a cross. He rose in three. And you're telling people all these specifics but yet you've been arguing for two hours about how you don't need to take things as plainly written and and all this kind of stuff. Does that not apply to all areas of scripture? Moises Silva edited a fantastic volume called Foundations of Contemporary Interpretation. It's divided into several sections. One of them pertains to science and faith, and one of them pertains to biblical literature, but one of them pertains to biblical history. And the question was, if Jericho was not raised, R-A-Z-E-D, is our faith in vain? Hmm. Because 
Scripture, let's take the book of Acts, for instance. Right. The book of Acts purports to be very carefully documented history. And so the simple things such as when the Northeaster, when this particular kind of wind came in or how long it took to get from this place to this place, when you trace out the book of Acts and you're trying to disprove the Bible, mm-hmm. you will have a very hard time <laughs> because the book of Acts does such a phenomenal job about such simple details that if they were fabricated, as you said, in a court of law, they wouldn't correspond to reality, but his does. Mm. Well, why is it that we expect that degree of factual similarity or certitude with respect to the book of Acts, but when it comes to, let's say, Joshua or other parts of scripture, somehow we can toy with this a little more. Mm. It really boils down to the question of how much does the genre of scripture or how much does ancient Near Eastern culture, or allowing to be a little more explicit, how much does the authority and weight of contemporary scholarship come to bear on how, to what degree does the Bible comport to historical verisimilitude? Right. Yeah. Why are we going to say this is what it plainly says, but we shouldn't take it that way? That's that's what it comes down to. I'll give you another example. So Paddle T. Pun, I'm not sure if you know uh, who he is. He's a progressive creationist. And uh, very interesting what he said in, in his uh, book here, A Theology of Progressive Creationism. He says this. I'll omit one part and then add it at the end. He said, it's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record is that God created heaven and earth in six solar days, that man was created in the sixth day, that death and chaos entered the world after the fall of Adam and Eve, that all of the fossils were the result of the catastrophic universal deluge, which spared only Noah's family and the animals therewith. Now, he got that from scripture. Right. Understand that he doesn't believe any of that, but that's what he says is the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record. Now, let me read it in context. It's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record without regard to all of the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science is that God created heaven and the earth. You, you, you see the way the man's mind is working? Look, here's what the Bible plainly says, but we don't believe it because when I was an atheist, I, I can tell you I... I I had Christians approaching me and when they would punt to things like this, well, you don't really believe in this story about some guy who got two of every animal on a boat. I can remember saying stuff like that to people and they would say, hardy, har, har. Yeah, hardy, har, har. And I would hear people, well, you know, that that could just be like a teaching narrative. And I'd be like, yeah, but the story about the dead guy coming back to life is probably a teaching narrative too. See, I, I wasn't educated enough to know that the Bible needed to be parsed out and this was po- it was just the Bible. And I knew what the Bible said, even though I hadn't really read it. I just, you know, through osmosis, heard all of these skeptical things about what the Bible said, and you can't really believe in a, in a global flood and all this stuff. So when people would, would argue like this, well, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but we don't have to take it that way. I'd be like, well, duh, if science is informing you and evolution's a fact, I don't need God. Like it was so easy for my mind to do that. And I just don't understand how Christendom hasn't seen that crystal clearly. I, I um... I recently wrote an article for a teaching magazine called Didakatos. Mm-hmm. And in that article, I got to briefly mention my trip to the Grand Canyon. Right. But one of the things that I also mentioned in there was the significance of the Coconino sandstone yep. in the Grand Canyon and the geological import of that. 
But I quote Bruce Waltke again because he's such an esteemed Hebraicist and such a well-recognized authority on matters of biblical theology. And Bruce Waltke states explicitly, he says, the real touchstone of Noah's flood is that even accounting for oriental hyperbole is that it left a geological impact on the earth. Mm. And then he says, I am not qualified to make an assessment of the science. Hmm. Here's the challenge. Bruce Waltke states explicitly that the text wants to be read this way. Right. And where does he lend itself towards? Well, here we have something else that's speaking to that. Mm-hmm. Now, we always want to go back. Where does our authority lie? Mm-hmm. If our authority is truly rooted in the Word of God, then there is reasonable, defensible answers to some of these challenges that are being presented by science. But the more that one investigates science with a capital S, methodological naturalism Mm -hmm. versus philosophical naturalism, or observational science versus historical science, or however else you want to put it, the more you will begin to understand that what God says in his word will never contradict what you see in the world. Exactly. Yeah, there is a record of the deluge all over the planet. It's called billions of dead things buried in sedimentary layers, right? All over the world. That, that's what I've seen as I've traveled and I've been several several different continents. Uh, seems to, to hold true. You see, it's, it's so interesting to me that the atheists, as soon as Darwinism became popular and millions of years became popular, um, for example, Thomas Huxley, right? Thomas they, Huxley. they called him Darwin's bulldog. bulldog. He latched onto this concept of, hey, wait a sec. If you're saying we don't have to take the Old Testament plainly written, why would we take the New Testament? I'll, I'll read the quote. It's from Science and Hebrew uh, Essays, uh, Tradition Essays, um, produced in 1897. Huxley said this, I confess I soon lose my way when I try to follow those who walk delicately amongst types and allegories. A certain passion for clearness forces me to ask bluntly whether the writer means to say that Jesus did not believe the stories in question or that he did. When Jesus spoke, as a matter of fact, that that the flood came and destroyed them all, did he believe that the deluge took place or not? If no flood swept the careless people away, how is the warning of more worth than the cry of wolf when there is no wolf. If Jonah's three days residence in the whale is not an admitted reality, how could it warrant belief in the coming resurrection? I mean, this is like laser-focused very early on, you know, as, as evolution was being popularized. This he understood it. Absolutely. You know, they knew their Bible well, right? I mean, he's an atheist, but he understood the Bible. He knew what the Bible plainly said. As you mentioned, look what he mentions, Jonah's three, three days. Jesus mentioned that. Yeah. Jesus touched on all those difficult things that, you know, modern theologians seem to, to have challenges with. And he links it directly to the resurrection, the message and of the gospel. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's move on here. Um, uh, we've got uh, Luke eleven fifty to 51. Um, I'll, I'll just read it and then maybe we can get your commentary on it. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. 
Yes, I tell you, it be, will be required of this generation. So, pardon anyway, me, go ahead. may I interrupt? Yeah, yeah. Something that we might not fully understand when he's making reference to these two persons mm -hmm. is that our Bible is divided up into a different set of books mm -hmm. than the way that most Jews would have read it because we right. follow uh, the Reformation stance of using the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. What he's quoting, we would say from Genesis to Revelation. Right. Well, what he is saying is from Genesis to Chronicles. Genesis is Abel, Chronicles is Zechariah. Right. Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Right. So he's saying from A to Z. From beginning to end. Actually, I said Z, but here's interesting. I, I saw Ken Ham in Toronto, and he says, so you guys are Canadian, eh? And he says, and I've heard that you say, you know, Z rather than Z. So why is it not a zebra? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he likes those little word, word games. <laughs> I have to admit, once I heard him say that, I was immediately hooked. <laughs> Yeah, he's got uh, he, those Aussies and their colloquialisms. Now, pardon me as well, um, Cain yes. and Abel. Mm -hmm. Well, Cain killed Abel. Right. Now, the Hebrew term there is Havel, H-E-B-E-L. Uh, -E -E the B can sound like a V depending on how it's punctuated. Mm -hmm. Havel is the key term in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's what's often rendered as meaningless or vanity. Vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless. Interesting. That's the Hebrew term hevel. But what it means is something very similar to fleeting, fleeting, fleeting. It's like a vapor. It's the mist that rises up of your coffee cup, that right. steam. How long did Abel live? Not long. His life was vapor. Right. It was hevel. Right. <laughs> Interesting. And, and again, I mean, why is Jesus saying these things? Talking about, I, I mean, I'm assuming there aren't a lot of theistic evolutionists that are arguing against Zachariah not being a real person or being a metaphor. It would be very, very difficult to argue that if he were. Right. And if you can then say, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, um, Abel was a metaphor, but Zechariah isn't, and how do we know? I mean, doesn't the Bible at some point with all of these special caveats and intuition and this, that, and the other thing, and punting to all these Well, does it not begin to turn into nonsense? It, that, that's what the way I think of it. I mean, how then can you understand Scripture? Is it something that just is, is constantly in flux that we can never truly know anything? You would need anything? a color-coded Bible that would alert you to, all right, we are approaching this, and now all of a sudden it's going to change color. So be on your alert because through science with a capital S, we know that this is not what it means. Yes. But wait a second, that can change because tomorrow we're going to change our mind. Well, isn't this interesting now when we look at some of these modern evangelicals and isn't it funny like well it's not funny it's tragic actually that within the last even 12 months how many theological heavy hitters have we seen cave on certain cultural issues now why are they doing that they're actually following man's word not god's word and if you look into the theology of many of them they've caved on genesis years ago now i'm not saying that you know there aren't staunch um, brothers and sisters in Christ that perhaps don't take Genesis the way you and I would. 
But let's just be honest. If in somewhere in your brain, you can look at God's word and say, yeah, I know that's what it says, but it doesn't have to mean that. Then aren't you open to the culture coming along and saying, well, you know, um, the Bible says marriage is between one man and one woman, but the culture's now saying this, so maybe we should bow the knee. The quip is often, it was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah, of course, yeah. But it is interesting, Calvin. You recently did a video on the Trojan horse mm-hmm. where they allow the enemy to enter into the city of their own free will. Right, and I was talking about deep time, the concept of deep time, the church walk that through their gates one of my friends we actually uh, before i even came here we were briefly in an email conversation and he says well dustin i'm just not persuaded of this whole common sense reading the text he says i just can't see it but what i'm hoping is that something as simple as this is that this common sense reading of scripture isn't just coming from the book of genesis this common sense reading of scripture is coming from the divinely authorized people who wrote the New Testament, and it's how they understood it, how they interpreted it, and so we can follow their lead. The New Testament use of the Old Testament, one of the key questions is, can we follow the lead of these people in their use and interpretation of the Old Testament? That's a key question. I believe, yes, we can. Yeah, I believe it too. That's a staggering statement that you made from this person you're communicating with. I don't know who they were, but... He's arguing against a common sense reading of the text? Believe it or not, Calvin, almost all of my friends who um, I'm in conversation with who are intellectuals argue vehemently against a common sense or a plain sense reading of the text. But, But do they do that when you send them an email? Oh, believe me when I say this, Calvin, when it comes to almost any other topic, we don't tend to have this issue. Right. So you're, you're communicating with your wife. You're communicating with a police officer. You're communicating with a work, work uh, mate. You're, you're communicating with your children. We all speak in a common sense plain. Like we, we expect people to take what we say or communicate in its most natural sense, even if we're, we're speaking poetically, right? If I'm not mistaken, Alice from Alice in Wonderland, Mm -hmm. was in conversation with Humpty Dumpty, the (laughs) egg. And Humpty Dumpty at one point in time says, well, that's a knockdown argument for you. And Alice says, well, what do you mean by that? And the end result is Humpty Dumpty says, whatever I want a word to mean, that is what it means. Right, exactly. He's Again, he's able to just take anything and just impose anything he wants. And we don't communicate with that that way in any other facet of, of, of human life. Allow me to elaborate a little more. Sure. I used to use, uh, this comes from the navigators, but 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, it mm-hmm. speaks about how all scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for four things. And then I, I draw a diagram. Imagine a highway with a traffic circle. Mm-hmm profitable for four things. One is for teaching. And so I put that on the left side of the highway before the traffic circle, what we would call the northeast of the west side. Mm -hmm. It's profitable for training. It teaches us the path to go on. It shows us the parameters. But two, it's profitable for reproof. That traffic circle, when you've gone off track, it tells you when you have gone off track. But then it's also profitable 
for correction. It tells you how to get back on track. Right. And then it's profitable, fourth of all, for training how to stay on track. Yeah. Scripture gives us parameters on how to stay on track even with respect to how to even interpret it. Yes. It gives us its own built-in blueprint for how it wants to be understood. Right. And back to that comment, you don't take things as plainly as plainly written. I don't understand. Then how do you approach Scripture? Are you expecting it not to mean what it means? I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't even understand how, how they can be functioning because then the Scripture is just totally open for interpretation. I, I just don't understand this whole concept. The Scripture actually says precept upon precept. We establish this. There a little. That's right. We establish this. Therefore, this. Therefore, this. That's the way the logical mind works. It's very progressive. It's very unfolding. I am fully persuaded, Calvin, that what is increasingly happening is that let's imagine that one does accommodate to an ancient Eurasian perspective of the Bible. And let's say that there is such a thing as divine accommodation with respect to divine inspiration. What then? Because if these things are not true, but this is what is written down, of what value and worth is what is written down? And to what end are these things that are written down profitable for training in righteousness or for teaching or for reproof or for correction? In other words, If it was not what is written, then why is what is written there? What function or what purpose does it serve? Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, Jesus' words himself, John 5, 46, 47, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Well, what did Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that Moses wrote those books. There are not a few people who would um, would argue JPD roll their and eyes. All that stuff. Yep. But they would say, well, of course Moses didn't write that he was the most humble man on earth, or of course Moses didn't write that uh, 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 of his own death. But here's what I find so interesting. The Bible lends itself when Jesus said, David wrote through the Holy Spirit. He is pointing to the superscriptions of the Psalms, things that many people would say aren't even part of the canon of Scripture to exclude it. One of my friends, Mark Ward, is uh, really trying to highlight um, the import of the superscriptions and how much they bear witness to being canon versus superfluous. But if Jesus said, David, through the Holy Spirit, wrote these things, we often attribute the Psalms to David. And then he says, and Moses wrote, speaking of Genesis and and the rest of the Torah as the fountainhead, you know? Well, wait a second. Jesus knew what he was doing when he was making reference to these things. And the book of Exodus makes it very clear that God spoke to Moses and using the finger of God. God. Mm -hmm. So Moses had direct testimony and a direct eyewitness account. And with a veiled face, 
encounter the glory of God. You cannot invent that account or somehow say Moses did not have a direct relationship to the writing that was testifying to these events. You cannot do it and maintain the integrity of the text. Absolutely. I mean, if I'm an atheist and I'm talking to a Christian and they're like, well, no, I mean, of course Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. I'm like, well, then Jesus lied. Because John 5, 46, 47, Jesus says, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me for he wrote about me. Exactly to what you were saying. What does this all mean then if, if you're arguing against the authority of Scripture? One of the points of contention, Kelvin, that came up in our last discussion mm-hmm. was when I quoted in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, mm-hmm. he says, I pray, Father, that you will sanctify them. And then he says, sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. Mm. And then later on with uh, Pilate, He says, for this reason I came into the world, to bear witness of the truth. Mm -hmm. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the way to life is through the truth. Mm -hmm. Now, if God's word is truth, and Jesus came to bear witness of that truth, then what is truth? Mm -hmm. Now, I hold to the belief that truth is that which corresponds to reality, the really real. When Jesus said, I'm speaking to you, of heavenly things, and you do not believe me of earthly things, Mm -hmm. while some of these things are earthly things. Absolutely. If we're not believing him of earthly things, why would we ever believe him about heavenly things? Because if he got the earthly things wrong, who's to say he got the heavenly things wrong? That was my whole situation before I, I became a Christian. Every time somebody wanted to talk to me about Jesus, I wanted to talk to him about dinosaurs. I wanted to talk to him about Noah's flood. I wanted to talk to him about the silliness of the ark uh, account in my mind. Um, don't you understand science? Don't you understand evolution? I knew that it, the Bible said God created things. I knew all. I that would stuff. love to talk to you about dinosaurs sometime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to crack that egg um, uh, one time. But anyway, let, let's continue on here. I'm going to read uh, Luke 17, 26 and twenty seven. We can discuss this. Just as because this is your wheelhouse, <laughs> just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving, being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. I appreciate how you put the emphasis on the word all. Mm. I would call that universalistic rhetoric. Now, some would call it oriental hyperbole, but it is interesting because Jesus himself, well, Luke, as recording the words of Jesus, Mm -hmm. emphasizes all. And that use of totalic language is so prevalent throughout Genesis 6 through 9. Mm -hmm. All, all, every, each. And even in the book of Peter, all the people died, save the eight. All. Now, imagine, how could a local catastrophic event manage to do so much damage? Absolutely. Well, I wrote here in my notes. Oh, you have notes. I do have notes. Yeah. The word Luke uses for flood is cataclysmos. I'm not a great... It means exactly what you think it means. Exactly. Which we derive our word, English word, cataclysm. And apparently... It's only used 
in the New Testament with respect to the deluge. Right. It's because only used with respect to the mavul. Because the regular uh, Greek word for flood uh, apparently is uh, plemura. I'm not familiar with it. But that wasn't the word that was used. It, was cataclysmos. It, was, it was cataclysmos. It was a cataclysm. It was a, you know, like like the deluge is always described. It's just this. It uses, it, it's actually a technical term. Mm. You can use it with a capital. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. See, I'm not a not a Greek or Hebrew scholar. Oh, my. <laughs> At all. <laughs> I, I do not classify. See, Gus Conkel, I love that man to death. <laughs> Me and my friends, we, we joke about how sometimes uh, we go to class just to breathe the same air <laughs> as Gus. Right? Yeah. Uh, I believe that encouragement is oxygen to the soul. Mm. And what Gus does is he has this wonderful capacity to breathe life right. into a dead spirit. But Gus made the decision one day, he was a pastor, and he just made the decision that he was only going to read the Bible in its original languages. Hmm. That was it. Wow. But he can read the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, including Aramaic, by sight. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yikes. But when you hang around people like that, uh, I would never, for instance, in one of my classes, Gus would recite the Psalms by memory in Hebrew. And one of my jobs was to translate them as he was saying them. Wow. But Gus has sometimes a unique way to pronounce words. Okay. So there was times when it was a little bit difficult, <laughs> and I had to rely on my own memory of what I thought that song was saying right. versus what I was hearing. <laughs> but when you hang around people like that, mm. or let's say um, you could probably fill in the blanks of some people that you know, yeah. I would be very hard pressed to ever consider myself an expert in any language. Yeah, there's some people with uh, just some incredible brain power out there for sure. I always tell people I got through life the same way I got through school. I just sat next to the smart person <laughs> and hope that it would osmosis in. Well, sometimes I leaned over just to check. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, <laughs> but all, all now so a this local, is yeah, this a is local inundation cannot have that catastrophic of an impact. But here's the other thing. Eschatologically speaking, mm -hmm. so with respect to end times. Yeah, because this is what this whole thing is referring to. When when Jesus returns and, and the, the, how, how it's going to happen and who's going to be affected and all that stuff. If right? Noah's flood yeah. was local right, or not globally, universally catastrophic. And that's another issue that came up. Actually, the same person before I came here. Yeah. He said, well, what we mean by universal or what we mean by global probably doesn't mean what they meant as global or universal. And there's a lot of credence to that viewpoint because when you look at uh, Paul when he's talking about going to Spain, mm -hmm. in his mind it would be fair to say that that's the end of the world. Mm -hmm. you know. But we also know that the usages of all in Genesis, a lot of people want to point to Joseph, how all the world— came to buy grain in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a with respect to whatness there. Yeah. With respect to the famine, this is who came. Right. But the flood has a different with respect to whatness. Right. The with respect to whatness for the flood was heavens and earth. Mm -hmm. That is its, uh, what we would call, horizon. Well, if this is a comparison 
to when uh, when, when the Son of Man comes. Jesus. Yes. Who's going to be affected on this planet? Well, very All. clearly, it is meant to be universal, Correct. global, totalic in all of its facets. So why then is the flood not and right? And, and here's the, the, other the comparison thing. doesn't make sense there. Just allow me to elaborate, if I will. Mm. Imagine that it were the way that it was written. How else could you put it? Right. Imagine if it really were global, universal. How else would you want to emphasize that point other than through the use of totalic language? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And why, again, prior to the rise of the concept of millions of years and, and Darwinian uh, evolution being popularized in the West, why did everybody believe that's what it meant? And not How just everybody, but even the New Testament authors themselves. Correct. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on then to Acts 17, 24 to 27. Want to get your, uh, your, your take on this. And of course, this is Paul. He's had his first crack at uh, at the Greeks, and he's preaching Christ crucified. And of course, they they refer to him as a babbler. What, what's this guy talking about? They have no background on uh, the Old Testament, who the real true God of the universe is. They've got a multi pantheon of gods, or, or uh, many of them are atheists, and they're not really you know understanding. And so he goes up the Areopagus, and he takes a different tack here. Um, and and this is what he says. You pronounced that very well. Uh, Calvin, um, <laughs> I'm not sure if you uh, can appreciate how significant that point is because uh, oftentimes in my classes, I would require students to read scriptures out loud. Right. And when they would come to certain points, they would want to uh, remain quiet or they would stumble or falter. And I would say, if you don't know how to say it, say it loud, say it proud. <laughs> exactly. Just make it sound like you know what you're saying. <laughs> anyway, I, I think I heard somebody else say Areopagus one time, so I know how to say it. Um, okay, so here's the actual text. This is Peter, or this is Paul speaking to the Greeks. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. That's Acts 17, 24 to 27. Now, what, well, I know what, what it is, but explain to our audience here, what is so significant of, of what he just said there? Well, pardon me, I'm going to share a little bit about my own story mm -hmm. of how uh, inept I once was. <laughs> uh, one of my good, dear mentors encouraged me to memorize scripture. Mm -hmm. And so he said, how many scriptures can you quote off the top of your head? There was very, very few. But at one point in time, I heard him talking to two of my peers, and he said, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I looked at him and said, who, the Richardsons across the corner? <laughs> I had no idea. But, you know, the earth is the Lord's mm -hmm. and the fullness thereof. And so when Paul is speaking about God creating all things, when you look at even Jonah, I serve the God who what? The God who created. Mm. There is something so significant, and I've brought this up before, but I want to reiterate the point. The fact that there was a being 
outside of the created order, mm. who himself was not part of that creation, is so, so much indicative of the evidence of the supernatural revelation that God imparted to the authors Right, of because this was so against the prevailing philosophies that these people that were hearing this message would believe, correct? You may as well say that my face is blue. Right, just it's just totally different than the way they they understood things. Now, the unknown God, the 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 one that you don't know, correct? Um, Kelvin, uh, which translation is this citing from? I'm pretty sure that's ESV, but I would have to check. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, not to be too technical, but mm-hmm. there is a textual and anomaly here. Yeah. It says, and he made from one and our translation that we read from here says, man, every nation of, of mankind to live. Right. Uh, I actually used to teach Acts, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, at Peace River Bible Institute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the text there actually says he made from one. Mm. And it could be appropriate to say one blood. Mm-hmm. It could also be appropriate to say one man. The variance between those two are not that great because the essence of what they're trying to say, it's right. simply from one, the KJ- he made all. What The KJV, I think, says one blood. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. So the key component there is that whether you take it from one blood or one human being, the essence is, is that we are all from the same ancestor. Right. And this is actually one of the key things that Paul is saying here because its reference is to Adam. It's to Adam. The first Adam and the last Adam. Of course, we're going to get into Romans here uh, very soon. And that's, to me, that's the, I don't know, um, that's that's the the end of the argument. But do you wish me to camp out any longer on Acts Absolutely. 17? Absolutely. Go ahead. If you've taught it before, I'm sure our listeners would be uh, interested in what you have to say. Oh, I think you're very gracious in your comment, Calvin. <laughs> It states here that God does not live in temples made by man. Mm. One of the key arguments that is now being used to forward an alternative viewpoint of Genesis is the cosmic temple view by John Walton. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the idea or the construct is, is that the world itself is God's temple. But it's important to recognize that Paul here could speak about temples and could speak about this cosmic temple idea as a way to bridge the divide. Mm -hmm. But he chooses not to. He chooses not to use that as his springboard or analogy point. And here's something that I think is important for us to recognize. Temples made a lot of sense to people. Temples would be a great way to create a correspondence between their concept and our concept. The idea of a cosmic temple sometimes does not do justice to the apologetic of Paul, if it were indeed true. Yeah, I mean, to me, again, it's so plain to see what he's saying. There's a bunch of temples. I I was walking around your city. You had all these idols. You people are very religious. And then he talks about he doesn't live in temples. Well, there would have been temples all over the place. It's it's just a plain reading of the scripture. Again. Now, here's one area where the ancient Near East is very, very enlightening. We have discovered certain statues with inscriptions on them. Mm-hmm. And some of those inscriptions are written in Aramaic. Aramaic is a very old language, so there's different variants in it. Mm-hmm. 
But what you basically discover through these statues is this statue is the image of the king. And they believe that that image had a divine spirit in it mm. because the king was basically God. That's why Pharaoh, you know, the killing of the firstborn son, he believed that he himself was God. Right. Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Oh, I mean, he sets word. himself up as God, right? That's right. But they believed that that image was indwelt with the divine spirit. So wherever that image was, he ruled through the stead of that image. Mm. In the same way, is it not profound that we are made in the image of God and God breathed into Adam mm. his life-giving spirit and he became a living being or a living soul. Wherever his image is, there God rules in his stead. Mm. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's pretty profound. That's neat. Well, let's move on, brother, to the book of Romans, because uh, like I said, I, I think this is Did you know that I also book. taught the book of Romans? Well, what haven't you taught? <laughs> Maybe it'd be easier for you to tell people that. <laughs> I, I had the privilege, and some would say the challenge, of teaching quite a bit. Right, yeah. No, that's well. That's why we, we love to have you on. But I, th I think these verses we're going to cover here are just so uh, profound. Some of the, the big guns, I think, of the biblical creationist arguments. So let's go for Romans 1, 18 um, to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Romans 1, 18 to 20. You know, Calvin, before I came here, actually, I shouldn't say before I came here, this morning, Yeah. Uh, when I was eating breakfast, I was reading a brief uh, excerpt from Carol Hill's book, uh, Worldview of Scripture. Right. It's uh, published by Kriegel. She also wrote The Grand Canyon uh, Monument to an Old Earth. Right. It's part of the same series. Yeah. But in that brief snippet, she takes umbrage with the intelligent design movement okay. because what Paul is speaking of here in Romans would be an awful lot like the argument that William Paley uses with the watch analogy. If you find any piece of sophisticated technology or basically, you know, Mount Rushmore as compared to a normal mountain, yeah. you would always say, hey, some sort of intelligent work is here. Right. And she says, well, the challenge with his intelligent design movement, and then she goes on and on and on saying, can't be right. Mm -hmm. Paul says, no, we can look to the natural order of things to tell us about God, and it sounds very much akin to an intelligent design argument. It's exactly what it is. He, he clearly states that you can know God exists because of what has been made. So it's created, the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So th that is the argument. Uh, you know, um, Buildings have builders. Uh, art has an artist behind it. Language has a mind. Exactly. And genetics is a language. It is. It's now, a coded language system. Carol Hill went into um, 
great depth to discuss the genetic similarity and how that points to uh, natural descent and common origins. But one of the difficulties that I find in the arguments about genetics, you recognize I'm not a geneticist. The only genes that I'm aware of are Wranglers. <laughs> I mentioned that I was born and raised in Alberta. Yeah. Believe it or not, I was baptized in Wranglers. <laughs> There's many stories that could be associated with that. <laughs> but when it comes to genetics, what is often not discussed, they often talk about, oh, the genetic similarity between this creature and this creature and how, well, that couldn't be unless there was a common ancestor. But metabolism accounts for much of the genetic similarity of all living creatures. Would it not make sense that any animal that metabolizes ought to have a genetic similarity apart from the concept of common descent? And here's the other thing that I believe is very important to recognize. I recognize that it's fairly controversial. When a person reads the book, Adam and the Genome by Scott McKnight mm -hmm. and Dennis Venema, there's factual information with respect to the genetics that is being propagated uh, by many young earth creationist literature that does not appear in that book and ought to be for it is not accounted for but the supposed similarities and the supposed discrepancies between these genetics is actually in my opinion not being accurately represented mm. because they have not done when Francis Collins did the Human Genome Project, and then they say, oh, look at the similarities between chimpanzees and whatever, they actually didn't do the full same sequence of events for many of these other animals. That's right. And for the listeners out there that perhaps have heard of these arguments and just think they're, they're ironclad, I encourage you to go to the Answers in Genesis website and just throw in a couple of keywords there in the search engine because we've got um, some brilliant PhD scientists that have exposed many of these things that you're, you're discussing there. Um, but regardless of similarity, I mean, you could say common descent, common designer is another very common sense understanding that of course there are similarities in the things that we see in living things because you've got a common designer and they have a common function and purpose in other words and common they, uh, um, in order to do the same tasks they have to be doing the same sort of thing. Therefore, their structure is similar. That's right. Um, and, and like you said, you know, me metabolism, you're eating the same thing. If you've got plants and, you know, th these different creatures are eating and, and stuff like that. So it really is not a, a great argument for the evolutionist to just say, well, look, there's similarities. Well, yeah, so what? I, I My grandkids draw me pictures and there are similarities and there's differences. <laughs> so that's, that's not really a great argument. But it's just so plain to see what, Paul is saying here, right? Everyone knows God exists. Everyone can know God exists because of what he created and the things that were made. So the creation reveals the creator. Now, here's the thing, and I've often pointed out this out to my theistic evolutionary um, brothers and sisters. If evolution is the way God created, okay, and an atheist is standing before God when he dies, and He's, he's, wow, God, my, you're, you're real. And he says, uh, yeah. And, and the atheist is like, but, but there was no evidence of you. 
As a matter of fact, my, my Christian friends told me that everything just makes itself. Abiogenesis. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the greatest excuse you could ever give to an atheist? Is is you're actually saying that when I look around at the natural world, it appears to have created itself. That is the essence of atheism. Atheos, no God, no creator. And what does every atheist have to believe in? They have to believe in evolution of some sort. And in order for that to be viable, you have to believe in millions of years because evolution can't take place quickly. That's called creation if it happens that fast. So you have to believe in evolution. You have to believe in millions of years to be an atheist. But this verse says that you can know God exists because of what he created and what he made. But if we're now turning around and saying everything just looks like it creates itself or makes itself or there are mechanisms that put these all these things together, you've just blown this verse out of the window. I don't know how you reconcile that. Calvin, you said you put the A in front of theism and you got no gods. Mm. Theism, uh, theos being God and yep. A, no God. Well, to muse means to think, mm. to amuse. <laughs> I find what you have just said to be very amusing, <laughs> right. very not thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I end up finding many Christians arguing against what the Bible plainly says. I guess if you're going to just say that the Bible doesn't have to mean what it plainly says, I guess you could look at that and say, well, we really don't know what that means. But then how do you know that Christ's you know, birth, death, and resurrection is the essential component for you to be saved? Like, How do you come to any conclusions about anything if you just keep arguing away the plain reading of the text? I was given um, a relatively speaking new commentary on Romans. It's part of a series called The Story of God Bible Commentary. And I actually have to highly recommend the series. Mm -hmm. uh, Lisa Ray Beal, uh, Marion Taylor, Paul Evans. In fact, I actually helped Paul Evans in his commentary with that. But in this new commentary that I was given, it was on Romans. When you turn to these passages about Adam and you look at it, he states very explicitly, I will now be sidestepping the question of the historicity of Adam. Then he cites a footnote to the four views of the historical Adam book that I brought up before. Yep. And then he goes on for the next X amount of pages about the theological significance of this passage. <laughs> and I thought, just a second here. When you sidestep the historicity of Adam, on what grounds do you have a theological message? Right. Well, by saying I sidestep the history is historicity of Adam, is he saying he believes in the historicity of Adam or he doesn't believe in the historicity? You, you can't actually, how do you, how do you sidestep that? Because you have to make a position on some things. What does that even mean to sidestep that? When I taught Romans, uh, John Stott used to be a very, very famous person in evangelical circles. Yep. His Romans commentary, in my opinion, regrettably does a very poor job of doing an expose of Adam. Right. And one of the things that I began to discover is that when it comes to Adam and Romans, because it was interesting for me to teach science, creation, the Bible, to teach Genesis, and then to go to a book like Romans and see, well, how are these New Testament scholars handling basically my world? Right. And I discovered, for the lack of a better way to put it, many of them handled it very poorly. Mm-hmm. Now, here's something that I find interesting, Kelvin. I recognize that we're not necessarily speaking about Romans here. Yeah. When I taught my course on modern cults, 
Uh, one of the things that I discovered, it was mostly focused on Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Right. The Mormons, in some of their official teachings and writings and doctrines, mm-hmm. believe that the South American natives are Semitic. In other words, that they are people of Israel, right? the lost tribes of Israel. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Now, the genetic research that has been done uh, has discovered that they're actually East Asian. Hmm. They're Oriental. My class found that to be uh, very bolstering to their faith. Hmm. But what I said is, do you not know that some of that same genetic information is also part of the reason why people like Dennis Lamoureux do not want to believe in a historical Adam? Hmm. And all of a sudden, this thing that was so uplifting and encouraging to them all of a sudden put them, and I said, and now we can lean into that more in my Romans classes and my Genesis and creation classes. Right. Interesting. Um, Okay, well, let's get into... In my opinion, it's it's the big gun of the whole biblical creationist argument, and uh, I have never had a satisfactory response in over 20 years of ministry uh, talking about this issue with uh, with believers that hold to old earth and and theistic evolution. Perhaps you have, but it's uh, uh, Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, here it actually is. One man. Right. It isn't just one. This means one man. One man, yeah. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So this is a clear reference to the fact that sin is the result sin in the world is the result of one man and his actions, and that would be Adam, of course, right? And that death, the wages of sin is death, is the result of, of that one man's sin. And we are all affected, the entire... Well, uh, we come from the loins and lineage of Adam. Exactly. You see, when Jesus is speaking in John 3 to Nicodemus at night, which is a very significant point of the narrative mm-hmm. because... He snuck around, he, yeah. <laughs> it's at night. And Jesus said, that which is flesh is flesh. That which is spirit is spirit. You must be born Again, Adam, Adam, came from the Adamah, the ground. Mm-hmm. He was fleshly, but Jesus, he came from above. He was of the Spirit. We're actually going to read that verse. Yeah, exactly. So here's the thing. If there was no death before Adam sinned, but you try to add millions of years to the Bible, and we've talked about this before, The only place you can put it is in the six days of creation. There's no other place to put it. So then if you're saying that those, you know, those long ages happened during the six days of creation, and of course there's several different ways people try to do that, gap theory, day age creation, theistic evolution, whatever. Then what we see in the rock layers, the the fossil record, all occurred before Adam sinned. And we know what's in the rock layers, dead Um, things. When I was in the Grand Canyon, a moment in time that uh, even brought some of my colleagues or my associates there almost to tears was a place where we met the great unconformity. Mm-hmm. There is a part of the Grand Canyon where uh, Dr. Bill Barrick was expounding on everything 
from this rock layer up right was laid down from the flood everything from here down was from creation and you could touch them both at hmm. the same time well i mentioned bethany solander last time she wrote a fantastic book. I have a signed copy of it. You can find her work at BioLogos. There are many people who are trying to explain the theology of death and suffering without the fall, millions of years. But as we have mentioned before, if death is not the enemy, but it is in fact the bringer of life, then should we not welcome it and embrace it? Right. But here, Paul makes it very clear that death was a punishment for sin, not a reward. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in Revelation, we read that the last enemy to be is destroyed death. is death. So, did God create a world with an enemy already present? Was was death something that was instilled into the very good creation? Because at the end of the six days, God says everything was very good. The, 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 the challenges to our theology and the challenges just to the character of the God that we worship, who Jesus is, you know, um, because Jesus is revealed as the creator in Colossians, right? All things he are created. He who holds all things together by the word. Yeah, and created for him and through him yeah. and, 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 and all these things. So if we're now saying that Jesus set up a creation where over billions of years things were killing each other and slaughtering each other and uh, cancer, we find cancer in the fossil record. So things were dying of cancer and we find all sorts of diseases and stuff like that in the fossil record. We're now saying Jesus, this, this God we worship, he is love. We know what love is. We can read the definition. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is right. First Corinthians thirteen. Yeah, all of those things. You know, if we're saying all that death and suffering occurred before Adam sinned, who exactly are we worshiping? And if God's going to restore the world to the way it was in the beginning, because how that's will we ever know the difference? Exactly. And so the only thing I've tried to see people do. To, to any kind of effect at all is to say, okay, but but Paul is talking about men here. And I'll give it to them. Romans 5.12 is definitely talking about men. It's not talking about everything. It, it, you know, so, so some will say, well, yeah, but animals were killing each other before the fall. The problem is Genesis 1.29 and 30 says that in the beginning, everything was eating plants, even the beasts of the field. Well, that's not- And then in Genesis 9, you have a reiteration. Allow me an analogy. Yeah, yeah. Imagine we recently had uh, some of my wife's family members over and I said to them, everything that's in our fridge, everything that's in our cupboards, help yourself to that. Now, in the Bible, when God says you may freely eat, mm -hmm. uh, it's a Hebrew idiom, eating you may eat. Right. It means freely eat. Then, of course, he says you will surely die. It says, dying, you, you will, will die. die. Yeah. Uh, you will surely die. Yeah. But if I said, hey, you are free to eat anything of the cupboard, anything in the fridge. Now, you might say, well, that might not be as clear as what it could be. So you mentioned about how, you know, I give to you every seed-bearing herb. To you, it shall be as food. 
In Genesis 9, with respect to the covenant and the rainbow and all that is coming after that, he says, as I gave you. Now imagine, my uh, brother-in-law and his family come back to visit. And I tell them, as I gave you before everything in the fridge and as I gave you before everything in the cupboards, so now I also give to you again all of these things. It makes any uncertainty of the first one all that more clear. That's you right. cannot escape the clarity, the clarity of the that's passage. Being brought there. And it totally makes sense because God says, okay, everything's going to eat plants in the beginning. Then the fall happens. Well, of, of course, carnivorous activity and all sorts of bad things happen. The first murder, and then you, you go on and on from there. And then after the flood, he says, as I gave you the green plants for food, I na- now give you the, the beasts, right, to eat. And that makes sense because now you've got a devastated deluge, like the, the catastrophe of Noah's, Noah's flood just reshaped the entire earth. If you've got people living in, you know, um, the, the Arctic and, and you, the command is just to only eat plants, well, those people will die because there's no good plants up there to eat. So, so they're not... It, I love the works of Jack London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it just all makes sense if you just take the Bible as plainly written. Now... Even all of the maneuvering and stuff like well, that, and people try to do around that. Here's here's the clincher for me. Okay, so you're talking about um, only men here in Romans five twelve. Now you you mentioned. Um, well, I'll I'll get to it. So, well, you were talking about the genealogies and how much time you can fit in there. Let's say another four thousand years. Evolutionists have now claimed that they have found modern humans, and I've got the article right here, that date to 196,000 years old. Mm -hmm. Some of these people died of cannibalism. So even for the people like Hugh Ross used to try to work this this all the time, well, it was, it was animals that were dying, not people, blah, blah, blah. Well, now, according to the evolutionists, which are using the same dating methods that you've accepted, there's no reason to not accept these this particular find versus the other ones. You've got fully modern human people eating each other, 196,000 years old. You cannot fit that into the, the, the genealogy there in, in Genesis. You have to assign them before Adam. So now you've got fully human people died and were eating each other prior to Adam sinning. Are we really thinking that cannibalism is very good? Is cancer very good? Or is all of that the result of Adam's sin? That makes sense. And then you think of the flood. It was global in nature. We find the result of all the bad things you know, 1,650 years after the curse, after the fall. And we find that recorded in the fossil record. Again, if you just take the Bible as plainly written, everything makes sense. If you don't, you start doing theological cartwheels in my estimation. I appreciate how you put that theological cartwheels. A lot often hinges on the definition of death and on the definition of life. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that you're familiar with the term nefesh hayah. Yep. And that's always used in reference to basically anything that breathes air. Right. The same kind of animals that got on board the ark, for example. But it's interesting. God actually uses unique ways to express how separate humanity is from the animals. Mm -hmm. And one of the key things that I also think is so important to realize is if one believes in evolution, as it is commonly taught, there is 
to be no real distinction between the animal kind and the human kind up to a certain point, or how does the image of God come to bear? Now, right. uh, one of my colleagues, Richard Middleton, uh, wrote a fantastic book on that, but I believe theologically, and I mentioned this before earlier, until you run a particular interpretation of Scripture through the entire biblical lens, mm. it will almost undoubtedly, certainly fail. And everything that you have just said with respect to man and death must ring true. And anything contrary to that does end up becoming, in my estimation, almost pure and utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you look at the totality of Scripture, the concept that there was a good creation marred by sin, Christ came to pay the penalty for sin for those who put the faith and trust in him, and God is going to restore the world once again to the way it was in the beginning, very good. And that those who accepted Christ will live in eternity. Now, we we recognize that there is such a thing as conditional immortality yep. uh, to God alone who is immortal. But when Jesus said—pardon uh, me. When God said, we got to expel them from the garden lest they eat of the— fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Mm -hmm. We recognize that there was a conditional immortality going right. on, but Adam knew what death meant. But death as we would define it is not the same thing as evolutionary death. Mm. They are not to be equated as the same thing because when Adam was judged, what was happening, the very essence of his core was affected to the point where it's only in the record of Genesis 5, so-and-so lived and then he died. So-and-so mm. lived and then he died. Yeah. That is a key genealogies are theologies. It is trying to make a point. This is the record of the book of Adam. In Adam, all die. That's right. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, you know, if the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. And I have some people go, well, see, Adam didn't die when he sinned. So therefore, you know, and they try to go off and, but wait a sec, look at it as plainly written. Dying, you will die. As soon as you sin, you're, you're going to start the process of death. Your body is going to start wearing out I and eventually you will die. Right? I believe genetic entropy is a great argument for mm, god absolutely and the gospel yep yeah absolutely the fact that our genetics are getting worse every generation that that goes by it, the, the, the fall, language code is breaking down that's right the, the the fall was not just a spiritual thing right the, the whole universe the cosmos is wearing out like a garment but um, that's very well said yeah, but you know, again, the book of Romans to me is just such a, uh, how do you reconcile that? I've never had any theistic evolutionist or long ager be able to explain to me, um, you know, those those huge arguments of death before sin. It, to me, it's almost like the, the palm faced, you know, as I've been doing presentations now for the past 20 years, people go, oh, right, I see. And that's where they actually get eager and excited to go look at the young earth creationists science. Right, because before that, it's just like, well, who well, cares? Isn't it uh, Georgia's uh, work, um, Purdom? Um, Georgia Purdom, Dr. Yeah, Georgia Purdom. That's yeah. right. She's a uh, biologist, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. 
Yeah, and then you look at the geology and you, you start oh. to realize things like, yeah, rock, rock layers, you know, form very quickly. They don't form slowly and, and so on. You went to that Grand Canyon trip, so that probably blew your mind. I was supposed to go last year. Oh, I wasn't aware of, of that. But then, of course, the whole, whole COVID situation and, and things like that. I've got a few people who I wish could go. Yeah. But it's interesting. Um, I was privy to some insider's information. It might surprise you how many people have been invited to go mm -hmm. and have chosen either to decline that offer, chosen to ignore that offer, or actually chose to take up the offer, but not let other people know that they did. Yes, I'm quite aware of that, actually. And to be honest, just for the listeners that are out there, in case there's somebody that uh, would like to go on that Grand Canyon tour, it's open to um, to pastors, to theologians, to scientists that are believers. This is all for believers. Christian leaders. Yeah, Christian leaders that would like to go on the um, that that trip. Uh, Answers in Genesis, it's by invite only, but you can co contact Dr. Terry Mortensen. But even if you choose not to go on that trip, mm -hmm. there is a Christian organization that does offer an alternative perspective, yep. and you need not have the special invite to do it. Right, right. Um, but yeah, there have been many, many Christian leaders go and uh, really had their minds, well, I, I would say from your own testimony that uh, that was quite the eye-opening experience for you, right? It was fantastic. Okay, well, let's move on to Romans, uh, let me see, 8, 19 to 22. I'll read it here. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What, what's the importance of understanding why the creation is groaning? Well, you see, I believe that an advanced angiology can be quite important to an understanding of Adam mm. because it's with respect to authority. We always come back to authority. Why was the angel not willing to dispute over the bones of Moses? Because of authority. Right. He says, you know, in whose name do I speak? Now, here's the thing. There's a reason why the enemy is called the prince of the power of the air. There's a reason why he's called the God of this present world, or however you want to put it. I believe it's because ultimately Adam had the headship over the world. Right. He was the divine representative for the kingship. But when he surrendered himself to the lie of the serpent, it was as if he took off his crown, gave his scepter, and handed it over to Satan. Mm -hmm. And therefore he abdicated his authority. Right. That which was meant for life is now being used for death. Yep. For the enemy comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's right. And we recognize that the result of the, the curse, the fall, right? Everything groans and travails, right? Um, it, it, it's what we would say simplistically as the quote unquote bad things. Right now, what are those bad things that you say? Well, you, how, how are you? How's your week going? Oh man, I had a bad week. Well, what happened? I don't know. You stubbed your toe. You found out you, your grandfather, you know, is sick. Uh, somebody, somebody well, passed Walter away. Well, Walter Gretzky just passed away, and you know, I passed Wayne Gretzky Drive on the way here, and right. 
you know, oftentimes we talk about uh, all the failures and moral compromises of so many people, but you look at a man like Walter and it just warms your soul mm-hmm. to know that there was a person like that left in this world and now he's passed away and we've lost that light. Right. But it's interesting, Calvin, um, the idea of, and he made it very good. Now, uh, the, one of the Hebrew words there used is tov. It does not mean perfect. Right. It does not mean perfect. There's a big difference between good and perfect. But what is important to recognize is this. When God created the world, he created it for it to be inhabited. He pronounced a blessing on the universe, a blessing on the earth. He pronounced life. There is words there in the account of creation for let the oceans swarm, Mm. let them teethe with living things. He did not create the world to be uninhabited. He created it to be full. Mm -hmm. When one watches a movie like, let's say, Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner, and you think of the stampedes of buffalo that used to roam this, the plains of Canada, the amount, the magnitude that this earth can sustain, it's incredible. God pronounced a blessing on this earth, and that blessing was vitality and life. It is the exact opposite of death struggle and decay exactly pain uh loss of a loved one um people being crippled Uh, you've got the results of uh, you know tornadoes and earthquakes and all of these things we recognize as quote unquote bad things well we know where the bad things came from according to scripture but if millions of years of earth history is true if the evolutionary story is true all the bad things happened before adam sinned and then what is going to God going to restore this world to be like, right? Now, theologically, there is, um, in the book of Ruth, Naomi says, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has raised his hand against me. She attributes the bad things ultimately directly to God. And of course, we recognize that the sovereignty of God is over and above all, but it boils back down to authority. Were it not for Adam's sin, would it be the way that it was? I mean, would it be the way that it is? In other words, is the way that it is the way that God wanted it, or is it the way that we wanted it? There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Mm. Exactly. Well, we're going to end up here because we do need to wrap this up, but you're going to appreciate this verse here with uh, with what you did, your doctorate. 2 Peter 3, 5, uh, uh, sorry, 4 to 6. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. I know you're going to have some good stuff for us there for that. Uh, Go ahead, Kelvin. Tell me some of your thoughts, actually. Allow me to piggyback off of what you think. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously it's it's talking here about... um, about the flood, the great flood, right? That the world with then existed perished. So again, 
the world, the entire world perished being flooded with water. Um, and, and that they willingly forget this, right? People are willingly suppressing the truth of what actually happened here. I, uh, in our very first interview together, mm-hmm. I mentioned the influence of Dr. Kent Hovind, yeah, uh, yeah. Dr. Dino, yeah, yeah. as being a part of my journey. I believe that Kent Hovind said it well when he was talking about this verse. Mm-hmm. He says, do you know what the Greek there means? Mm-hmm. It means dumb on purpose. <laughs> Willingly ignorant? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sometimes, and I do not want to belittle education in no small ways, but Mark Twain said, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. Right. Sometimes what a PhD stands for, Calvin, is piled higher and deeper <laughs> because to be willingly ignorant, it is amazing how much, you know, some people are born smart, but education ruins them. Well, I've seen in academia that almost the definition of academia now is not coming to a definite conclusion. That's almost, ooh, like you're an absolutist. You, you actually believed like, I'm sorry, but I, I just don't know how you live your life like that. Like, especially with your theology, because your theology is supposed to inform your life and your activity and who you are as a Christian. We don't compartmentalize. I don't just, oh, I'm going to study theology now, and it's going to be some philosophical, you know, diatribe and, and, and exploration of this, that, and the other thing. Scripture should inform us as to how we live our lives as believers, how we understand the Scripture, and it should speak to us and speak life to us and let me know what God wants of me and what God doesn't want of me. It commands our allegiance. Now, what I find interesting about this passage in particular is it gives us an understanding of the framework to understand the flood Mm. because he compares the creation of the world with the deluge of the world. And it was covered in water. Now, that is very interesting because we can gain a better perspective of how they understood what the flood meant because he compares it to creation. Creation was global. It was universal because it had to be global. It had to be universal. And so in that same way, how does that analogy break down if it was not a universal, global, catastrophic deluge? Right. Absolutely. Well, we've come to the end of our time here, but... um, Thanks so much for taking the time. That, that This was a lot of fun. I'm sure people have gotten a lot out of this. And many people that hadn't thought about the New Testament and how it relates to Genesis before probably are, are just sitting there buzzing right now. But let's face it, the New Testament authors, they, they didn't treat Genesis 1 to 11 as some allegory or myth. They took it as plainly written as real history. And Calvin, we didn't even get into the book of Jude mm-hmm. about, you know, Enoch, seventh from Adam. We didn't right. get into Hebrews and how it speaks of Noah in faith building the ark. We could have went longer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the... The totality of what the New Testament speaks to creation, it, it, you could almost recreate, recreate the entire creation account just from reading the New Testament. But anyway, we're going to have to break here, brother. But uh, thanks, and we'll have you on again real soon. And uh, there's just so much to explore. Really appreciate your uh, your expertise and your knowledge here, brother. And we'll, uh, we'll have you back soon. Thank you very much. God appreciate it.